Okay, well, good morning and Happy New Year. It's great to be with you. And what we're doing is starting this, this year and this term with a short series called Devoted, in which we're going to be looking at what the early church were devoted to at the very beginning of the church. And we're going to look at uh, the book of Acts and Acts chapter 2. So if you've got a Bible, you want to turn to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to look at a few things over this series that the early church were committed to when they started. And the reality is that all of us, whatever our background, you know, you might be here for the first time in a church. You might have come at Christmas. This is your second time ever in this church. But all of us are going to be devoted to some things this year. Over 2017, uh, we will all be devoted to a few things. We'll be prepared to make sacrifices for a few key things that we think are really important and worthy of our devotion and our sacrifice. And they might be all kinds of things. I mean, we might be our families. Many of us would be devoted to our families or our careers or our friends or maybe our, our leisure time. Could be some people I know devoted to cars or to knitting or to football or to whatever it might be. And the trick is just to make sure that we're devoted to the right things, to be committed to, to be making sacrifices for the right things in a year. But if you are, for instance, devoted to something that is not kind of shouldn't be highest on the priority list, but you're devoted to it, and you're devoted to it more than something that's less important, your life can go down the pan very quickly. So if you're devoted more to social media than to your family, you'll find actually your life will go south very quickly because you end up misprioritizing. It's not that there's anything bad necessarily about social media. It's just about its place in your life might be too high. And we know this, so we structure our, at this time of the year, we appraise our lives and we think, well, what do, I, what do I want to prioritize next year? Kind of a way of saying, to what do I want to be devoted? Or do we as a family or we as a community want to be devoted this next year? So we take, take an example that people are devoted to without even knowing it. Television. I, you might not think, oh, no one thinks they're devoted to television. But the average adult in this country watches three hours of television a day. So that means a great many of us are probably watching three hours of television a day. Nothing wrong with television. I watch television. But actually, that level of accidental devotion may be just a misplacement of the finite resources we have in terms of time and energy and so on. So that means over your lifetime, you end up watching a decade of television if you live an average length of time. And at this point in the year, it's a good time for us to stand back and say, is that the right place for that level of devotion? Uh, it may, may well not be. I suggest that it probably isn't. And so all of us are devoted to some things, whether we know we are or not, whether we meant to be or not. And it's worth being deliberate or intentional about what those things are. It's worth standing back and saying, is this the right thing to be devoted to this year? So I'm going to ask the question, what are we going to be devoted to in 2017? And the passage of Scripture we're going to read now describes the first day of the church as, his, as the people of God discover for the first time. It's a large crowd, and they discover for the first time that Jesus has died for their sins and risen from the dead and ascended to the Father and poured out his Holy Spirit on all people. And their response to that message, which you may have heard for the first time in the last couple of weeks, but the, their response to that message was to want to change their lives, to turn their lives around, to repent, to get baptized in water. And then they became this kind of a community that was devoted to four things in particular that we're going to focus on through this series. And we're told about them in Acts 2, verse 42 
They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And that's a good list of four things. And in this series, we're going to take them one at a time. We're going to look today at the apostles' teaching, then at fellowship and community, then at breaking bread. And in the midweek evenings on Wednesdays, we're going to be devoting ourselves to prayer as well. And it'd be great for those of us who can to come and join us. So let's read from Acts chapter 2. And we're going to start at verse 32 to put this all in its context. Peter is speaking and he says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, referring to the gift of the Holy Spirit. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They devoted themselves, Luke says, to the apostles' teaching. And that, in Christian terms, is the New Testament scriptures. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, what the apostles taught about Jesus and what his life, death, and resurrection meant for their lives. That's the Christian scriptures in the New Testament. And you remember that these individuals we're hearing about were Jews. So they were already devoted, if you like, to the Old Testament. So to say that this community was devoted to the apostles' teaching in our terms would be the same as saying they were devoted to Scripture. So I use those two almost interchangeably this morning. But from the first day of the church... Christians have been devoted to apostolic teaching, to the Bible. Christians have always had a sense of prizing the Bible, of being devoted to it. We've been committed to reading it and hearing it and reciting it and singing it and praying it and obeying it throughout our history. And sometimes we've got it wrong and sometimes we've got it right. But that's been a part of our story from the beginning. Why? Because we recognize it as the Word of God. 
as the means by which God speaks to people. God speaks through this book. He builds us up and tears people down through this book. He confronts and he challenges and he comforts and he consoles and he heals and he even saves people through this book. This is the words of God through which God's word is made known to us. And so Christians have always said, this is important. This is something to which to be devoted. We're devoted to the Bible because it contains the words of life. That as God speaks, it changes things. It transforms us into the likeness of Jesus. And it challenges and gives words of, by which people can be saved. Jeremiah says, is not my word like fire and like a hammer that breaks rocks? The psalmist says, your word is a, a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This book is powerful and Christians have always affirmed that and said this is part of who we are. This devotion to this book really matters. So my first month at King's, I was really struck by the fact that that's, that's something that's shared in this church as well. I knew it would be, but it's exciting. I, people kept stopping me and saying, oh, we love teaching in this church. And, or saying, we want more of the Bible. You know, my first few messages, I didn't talk about the Bible as much as I often do because of the kind of series we were doing. And people were saying, we want to hear more of the Word of God. I think, what a wonderful problem to have. And uh, there's just such a, a hunger for the Word of God here. And I was struck by this as I met with a few of the 20s. Um, on the Catford site early on in my first month and we spent an evening just talking and having pizza and a lot of the conversations we were having were focusing in on how do I best get the Bible into me in the course of a busy city life how do I do that you know, and it occurred to me that actually that's a that reflects a very important emphasis a very important question that many of us have Namely, it's not really, why does the Bible matter? I believe the Bible matters. I'm a Christian. I I know that God speaks through this book. I know it's trustworthy. I know it's good for me. But how do I best get the Bible into my life as my foundation and keep soaking in it in the course of busy city life? How do I do that? And uh, I think that's a very important question because a lot of believers don't need convincing why. They need convincing how, if you like. And uh, it was a good discussion because actually one of the, one of the young pastors said to me, um, so how, you, you read this, this, and this, and you, read the, you know the Bible well. How do you do it? And I said, well, to be honest, that's not quite the right question. I, I think at the moment how I do it because I'm a pastor and I get paid to actually spend a lot of time reading and studying and thinking about the Bible and teaching it. But actually a better question would be how did I do it when I was working in London with a busy city job like you to these group of uh, young men and women and, and I had very little time in my day and I was working 60 hour weeks like you are and I was commuting and trying to make space. How did I do it then? Like now, I was like, well of course, I get to, I'm supposed to read the, I'm paid to read the Bible. But what do you do when you sort of, you, your entire devotional life is sort of feels like it's being squeezed in between sleeping and working and so on. What do you do then? And uh, so I just told them, I said, well, this, was, this is how I did it. I spent two years commuting into the West End and living in Islington and catching the number 19 bus and doing my devotions there. And, uh, and in, a, in a way, I, had, I would sort of spend a bit of time praying because I found I can't do that on the bus. Uh, personally, I found that hard. So I would pray and worship in my room, but then I'd get on the bus and I'd have with me my Bible and a copy of a Christian book and I'd be studying and wrestling with the scriptures on my way in and then often on my way back as well and trying to get the Bible into me in the bits of the day that I otherwise wouldn't use. And it just occurred to me, for many of us, it's that kind of thing that's vital in city life, isn't it? It's, it's not, hey, I've now got to find an extra big chunk of the day. It's more, for many of us, a question of how do I make better use of the chunks of the day I already have 
to be able to soak myself or devote myself to the apostles' teaching. So here's a few for instances. And I'm not saying you should do these things or that you must do these things. I'm just giving them as examples. But what if, for a year, you only used your commute to read the Bible or Christian books? I'm not saying you should do that. And probably no one in this room will actually do that. You'll sometimes read whatever it is, the evening standard. But you might well, what if you did, if that was your, your focus for the year? How much would you read in a year? If, you spent, if your commute was then 15 minutes a day, you'd read the whole Bible in a year. If your commute was half an hour a day, you would read the whole Bible in a year and another 20 books of average size that were Christian books. You could, in other words, you could do a lot with that little bit of time. Now, some of us might think, oh, I couldn't do that. But actually, some of us have got commutes a fair bit longer than that. You might only have to do it every other day. But it's just an example of how we might use time like that. What if, say, you don't, you don't say, oh, well, I don't sit on the bus. I cycle. How, what if you... The only audio content you used while you were going to and from whatever you do, whether it's work or uh, some volunteering or whatever it might be, what if the only audio content you listened to when you were cycling or walking or taking the dog out or doing laundry or driving or bricklaying or whatever you do, what if the only audio content you used was the Bible being read or Christian audiobooks or podcasts of biblical teaching? Not just Christian music, but biblical content what how much would you get through what if you only used your social media feed to push biblical content or christian teaching again i'm not saying you should or must do these things but just there might be quite a lot of space in already in our lives that we might say actually this year i want to be devoted to the apostles teaching in a way that last year i may have been unduly devoted to this this or this and those are some examples of ways in which that might work in the context of life today that actually, even when I was commuting, were not available because of technology and so on. In other words, if we're going to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, we probably need to read scripture intentionally or deliberately, and that may mean allocating more time to it. A plan or a diary or whatever, or using our time differently. But then what do we do? Okay, so I've got some time. What do I do? How then? Do I read the scriptures? And I'm going to suggest for the rest of the message, I just want to look at five things, five practical things, ways that we can read the Bible that I think will help us in our devotion. Because many of us, actually, we do set aside time, and we do honor the Bible and think it's important, but we still find it hard to read. And I totally get that. I think almost everybody does in some way. So here's five Ways of reading the Bible, which I hope you'll find helpful, and particularly, I think, might fuel us together in our devotion to the Apostles' teaching. And the first one is to read the Bible slowly. To read the Bible slowly. Psalm chapter 1 and verse 2 refers to the blessed man, and it says, His delight or her delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That word meditates is a beautiful word for effectively reading the Bible slowly. It's like, how do you suck a sweet? Right? You probably see, sometimes you give a sweet to a child, and they put it in their mouth and immediately start crunching. You think, no, no, that's often not how to get the best out of a sweet. You get given a sweet, particularly like a, a succulent sweet, like a pear drop or something. They're just beautiful. You just disappear into this magical land of pear drop flavors. And as you're out there just wondering about the beauty of the world through this sweet, you're thinking, I am sucking all the goodness out of this and making it last as long as it can. I'm sucking it slowly because I want to get the best out of it. Actually, there's a place for reading the Bible like that. 
He's saying, I am going to meditate. I am going to draw slowly the best bits out of this book. My friend Steph Liston, he leads a church in North London. He says, if I was going to sum up how to read the Bible to new people in one word, I would say this, slowly. That's the, that's how, the advice he would give someone reading the Bible for the first time. John Piper says, you know, if you rake in the garden, raking is easy, but you only get leaves. Digging is hard, but you might find diamonds. And actually, that takes time, doesn't it? So, do you know what? If I just sort of want to get through the Bible, just, oh, yeah, so I'll just pile up the text, that's it. Now we're done and move on to the next thing. I may not get the best out of it. The diamonds often get found with harder work that takes longer, and I might just need to read the Bible slowly. And in that context, I just want to put in a plug for paper Bibles. So I think if you're anything like me, you got used to reading the Bible on a screen. A few years back, I realized that reading the Bible on a screen was just not helping me take it slowly. So I went back to paper. I'm not saying you must at all. I'm just saying I personally would commend paper Bibles in book form rather than just on a screen because otherwise it's just got flicking and don't necessarily take it in. Take it or leave it. But for me, that's been helpful. And as we read the Bible, it's good to, to think, okay, I want to take this slowly. I want to get the best out of it. You can ask questions of Scripture. You know, go and take the Bible slowly by saying, you know, Rudyard Kipling said, you know, I have these, I have what, six faithful serving men. They taught me all I knew. Their names are what and why and where and how and when and who. Like what, why, where, how, when, who. Just reading Scripture that way. Who's this? What? What's it saying? When was it saying? Where? Why? Just good to ask questions of the text and to suck, if you like, to suck the Bible like you would a suck a sweet. So I want to get the best out of this text. And make the most use of it. One of my um, favorite sort of historical reflections on the Bible is a, a question and answer document that was written in Germany uh, 450 years ago called the Heidelberg Catechism. I love it. I've just blogged through it. And they just do this brilliant thing where they go through the Lord's Prayer at the very end of, the, of this question and answer session to teach Christians how to pray. And as they're doing that, um, they sort of raise these questions and sort of say, what does this phrase mean? And then they just... They just sort of get the best out of the phrase. They tell you that's what it means. And so they, for instance, they say, so what happens, what what does that phrase mean? Do not bring us to the time of trial, but deliver us from the evil one. What does that mean? And then they meditate on it a bit. They say, well, that means by ourselves we are too weak to hold our own, even for a moment. And our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, never stop attacking us. And so, Lord, uphold us and make us strong with the strength of your Holy Spirit that we may not go down to defeat in this spiritual struggle, but may firmly resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. That's, that's, they're meditating on a phrase. What does it mean? Don't lead us into temptation. It means all of that. And then they say in the very next line, and what does that little word amen express? I love this. What does amen mean? You think, just amen, I don't know, just say it. And they say, no, what does that little word amen express? And they say, amen means this shall truly and surely be. It is even more sure that God listens to my prayer than that I truly desire what I pray for. Isn't that a fantastic answer? That's if you like meditating on or sucking the goodness out of the scriptures, saying, I want to understand what it means. I want to read it slowly. I want to make sense of it. I want to get it into my soul. So one of the things we can do, one way of reading the Bible, is to read it slowly. Now with the next one, I'm going to be completely confusing, particularly if you're new, but it's almost particularly important if you're new, newer to the Bible. I think you also need to read the Bible quickly. 
which is the kind of annoying thing people like me sometimes do. Read it slowly, read it quickly, and we'll come to how you tell the difference in a minute. But there are parts of the Bible you just need to read quickly. If you are facing Numbers chapter 7, and you are new to the Bible, you need to read it quickly. You do not want to go through that, trying to suck the marrow out of every single individual name in this list. You actually need to read it quickly. Yeah, okay, I've got the idea. It's a list of lots and lots of names. I get it. Okay, move on. Passages about buildings. There are passages in this book that go on and on about buildings for a long time. Get the idea. They're building a tabernacle, which is a tent where God lives, and it's very ornate, and it's got different courts. Okay, get that, if you're, particularly if you're new, and keep going. Otherwise, you might, you know, might never come out again. And you find the same with uh, prophecies sometimes. You find prophecy oracles of judgment against foreign nations. Okay, God is going to judge Babylon for being bad. Okay, keep moving. There are a lot of parts of this book you probably need to read quickly, particularly when you're new. With stories, I guess you'd find it's probably a little bit easier because the stories hold our attention more easily. But even then, so even then you need to keep moving. So just keep reading at a speed where you get what's going on, but you're not sort of skimming everything, but at the same time not necessarily going, right, now what does that individual word mean here and what does that thing mean? Particularly when we're new to Scripture, we've got to learn to read parts of it quickly. So the question, of course, is how do you tell the difference? This guy's saying, I've got to read it slowly and quickly. What does that mean? Maybe I'll read the whole thing at medium speed. And that's not what I'm saying at all. And here is a very crass rule of thumb that will have some people in the church freaking out for how barbaric it is. But as a very broad rule, I would say read the New Testament and the Psalms slowly and the Old Testament quickly. Now, that is, there's many exceptions, which you, as you get to know the Bible better, you'll learn what they are. You'll think, oh, no, you can't read Isaiah 53 quickly. Come on. Okay, there are many exceptions. But as a general rule of thumb, if you're new to the Bible, reading the New Testament quickly and the Old Testament slowly is probably not a bad place to start. And actually, if you, you're doing that, you're reading the New Testament, really soaking in it, and the Old Testament, you keep going, you'll find you might read the Bible more thoroughly and feel like you get some momentum, but you'll also get much more out of it as you're marinating in the wonderful text of the New Testament. So read it slowly, read it quickly, read it in community. That's the third thing of five. Read the Bible in community. One of the most dangerous features of Western society is the way we think about everything in individualistic terms. And that's a, a common observation many people make. We, we just think about everything as like God and me, the me and my Bible, me and my prayer life, me and my uh, walk with Jesus. But actually, it's very important that we learn to read the Bible, not just individually, as good as that is. And I was just saying, you know, I read the Bible on the number 19 bus. I spend a lot of my life reading the Bible on my own. But that's not the only place to do it. And we need to learn to read the Bible in community. Um, we are not like you know, sort of Simon and Garfunkel. I am a rock. I am an island. Me and Jesus. I just I'm a, I'm an island on my own, and I worship God on my own, and I read the Bible on my own, and I come with my own opinions. And it may be that the preacher or the church or my life group or something else thinks something different, but I this is what I believe. Now that's that can be very dangerous. Can lead us into a cul-de-sac of our own perceptions and views. The Bible is meant to be read together. You've got to remember, for most of the history of the church, a lot of people couldn't even read. So for them to say, hey, take your... A lot of what I've already said would not make much sense to many Christians in history. Hey, take a Bible. Well, I don't have one because it's too expensive to buy, or we haven't discovered printing yet, and then go away and read it. think, well, I can't read. So this advice would seem strange to many people through history and some people still around today. 
But what they would do instead is they would come together into a community where the word of God was read and explained. And we've got to do that too. We've got to be part of community where the Bible is honored and celebrated and taught and sung and prayed and explained and read aloud. And as we do that, we'll find the Bible kind of comes at us in a different way than it often does when we read it on our own. So when I read the Bible on my own, I notice things that speak to me and my circumstances, very particularly. And I find some bits interesting and some bits not. And there's some bits I understand and some bits I don't. When I come and read the Bible in community, I find God is addressing the whole people corporately with a voice of authority. When you hear the Bible read and explained like this, it does something different to you spiritually than it does when you're just reading it on your own. There is a corporate sense of hearing the voice of God read and explained to us, which has power to challenge, to crash into us, to stir us and to reshape us. And then we read the Bible in groups and we go into groups. Often many of us across the church over the course of this term will be gathering in groups around South London, reading the Bible or discussing, debating and engaging with the Bible. And sometimes say, well, this is what I thought, but how does that square with this? And then other Christians will be saying, oh, no, 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 because I think this is an important thing. Oh, right, I've missed that. That dynamic is very important when it comes to reading the Bible. We ask questions, we discuss and we debate and understand and grapple. And so we read the Bible in community. We read it slowly, we read it quickly, we read it in community. Fourthly, we read the Bible prayerfully. Read the Bible prayerfully. I love the um, language. Matt Redman is a songwriter who I just think he's a very helpful image he often uses of what we do is we breathe in revelation and then we breathe out response. that's That's what God says is true. That's the joy or the worship or the prayer that I want to give back to him in response. Okay, taking some more grace. Okay, breathe out response. It's a very helpful picture, just as naturally as we breathe in and breathe out. So read the Bible, take in, and then breathe out. Thank you, Father. And we do that as you start. Lord, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your word. Just prayerfully, as we do it as we, when we don't understand, right? We breathe in a text. And then, what on earth does that mean? I don't get it. Lord, please help me understand. We do it when we do understand. Lord, okay. That is a beautiful truth. Father, thank you for showing me what that means. Thank you for the power that that truth has when applied in my life. Do it as we finish. Text is over. Thank you, God. Thank you so much for revealing your truth to me. Help me now live according to your word, according to your story. Help me understand the greatness of what Jesus has done for me. So it's an interplay, if you like, between the truth and the application. So we are breathing in the word of God and breathing out prayer. And that's a good dynamic to have in the course of our prayer lives. So read the Bible prayerfully. Don't let it just be an intellectual exercise. Some of the people who know and I've read as part of my job, I've read many books by people who know the original languages and the context of this book so much better than I do or you do. And they still miss Jesus. And they manage to miss Jesus partly because they just don't read it prayerfully. They're not expecting to find him. So we want to do that with a spiritual expectation, a hunger that God will speak to us through his word. So read the Bible slowly. Read the Bible quickly. Read the Bible in community. Read the Bible prayerfully. And finally... Read the Bible Christianly. Now, this sounds really silly, right? Read the Bible like a Christian. How else would you read the Bible? Well, it is very easy to read the Bible 
particularly the Old Testament, but the New as well, as if Jesus wasn't really a thing. It's easy to read the Bible without reference to Christ. We're not in a Christian way. It's easy to read the Bible in the same way that, with respect, a Jew or a Muslim would read the Bible. We want to read the Bible Christianly, actually shaped by the person of Jesus. So I've, it's an analogy that may help you. I do, I've done a lot of weddings and as a pastor, and so one of the weird offshoots of that is that there are photographs of me in the living rooms of a lot of people in the church I used to be a pastor at in Eastbourne. Because they got married, they took this lovely photo, and there's often me in the background, like shady. The two of them, you know, suit here, white dress here, kissing or whatever, and I'm often in the background clapping and smiling. The photo's not really of me, but I'm still in it. And I've had this experience of going into people's sitting rooms, and, ah, look, there's a photo of me. And seeing myself, it's weird, actually, because you're in people's homes. And as a step, you think, but that isn't really a photo of me. It's a photo of them, and I happen to be there in the background, but really the photo's not about me. I might be in it, and it's nice that I'm in it, and I was glad I was there, but that's not what the photo's about. The photo's about them, and I'm in the background. We should read the Bible that way. If we go to the Bible and say, oh, it's about me, it's about me, look, another text about me. You think, well, that can be applied to me. You are there, you're in the background, it's okay. But that Bible's really about him. And from, for us to go to the Bible expecting to find it mainly about me is like me walking through all those sitting rooms. Look, another family who are just obsessed with me for having me in their sitting room. It's just not the way we're supposed to think about the scriptures. And I love the summary that we get of this from Tim Keller, which I'm going to finish with because I think it's so helpful. But he's just giving some examples of how we need to read the Bible Christianly as if it is really about Jesus rather than about us. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is given to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who innocently slain has blood that cries out not for condemnation but for acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void not knowing whither he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mountain, but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son you love from me, now we can look at God taking his son up the mountain and sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and God and brings a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better Boaz, who welcomes Gentiles into his family and says to them, May you be blessed by the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes the people's victory, even though they didn't do anything themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain, so that the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible is not about you, it's about him. And as we are devoted, friends, to the scriptures this year, let's read it Christianly. Let's read it expecting to encounter the risen Jesus as we do by his spirit to the glory of God. Amen? Let me pray for us. 
Father, we are so thankful that you have spoken to us in this book. We thank you that you speak. We are not deaf to what you think. We are not guessing blindly in the dark. We are aware of what you would have us do and more importantly of what you have already done for us because you have revealed it to us in this book. And we love you for speaking to us. Help us as a community and as individuals and families to encounter you in the word of God this year to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. In Jesus' name, amen.